Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay. This is oh, this is all highly unorthodox, but it's also quite wonderful. We're sitting here in the lobby of the study, the wonderful hotel in New Haven, and we're sitting here with Sir Tom Stoppard, who is visiting uh, New Haven because, in fact, the Yale Rep uh, is in the process of staging Arcadia, a play in which a play which, first of all, many people believe is the greatest play in the English language of the lifetime of a person like me. I was born in 1954. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. He he won't necessarily make that claim, but first of all, let's just prove that we're here and we're alive and there's uh, there's an audience here. So uh, people of the study, I mean, you know, just, there we go. So, Sir Tom Stoppard, first of all, welcome to New Haven. Welcome to the study. Thank you so much. Um, imagine, as, as humankind does from time to time, imagine that uh, they were going to shoot uh, some... Um, information into outer space, uh, some culture, so that uh, another intelligence cruising along might, might capture it and find it and decode it and, and know a little bit more about the human race. And they approached you and said, well, it can be any of your works. Any of your works can go into space uh, and, and possibly be seen by uh, people from, from far away or by individuals from far away. What would you choose? Um, I'd, I'd probably choose the thing I was currently working on whenever that might happen mm -hmm. because um, I, I think one tends to feel that current work trumps past work. Mm -hmm. Not always true, of course. I'd be happy for anything to go up there. <laughs> it also would depend whether it would be the only surviving copy. Um, I'd have to <laughs> think that one out. So the thing that you're working on right now is called the, the hard problem, the hard question? Um, or are you done with I'm that? Just, I'm just done with that. Not done because not been in a rehearsal yet. And, yeah. and I think of rehearsal as an opportunity to muck about with the text, mm -hmm. which no doubt I will do. So that's not ready to go into space? I think it's not ready to go into space. Um, the last um, stage play I wrote was called Rock and Roll. And since it had... Mm -hmm. Music, music and politics and mm -hmm. science, perhaps that w would be the one I ought to have mentioned as being the choice, but mm -hmm. it's not a question I've ever considered before. All right. Well, Arcadia would be a, a good choice too, I think, and it, mm -hmm. it really has I, 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 everything in it. I mean, I, I, I'm sitting here rereading it and thinking it's got, uh, it's got everything. It's got fractal algorithms and it's got uh, chaos theory and it's got love and it's got sex and it's got uh, landscaping and it's got the second law of thermodynamics and it's got the, the clash between classicists and romanticists. Uh, it's got academic poseurs. Um, what, what did it start out as? When you, when you sat down to write Arcadia, what did you think you were writing? Um, 
You know, I, I don't really know that much about a, a play when I get into it. I have an area of interest which might be quite intense, but it's essentially a topic mm. or it's a, quite an abstract idea. Um, in the case of Arcadia, um, I, one of the things which I would mention now because it will put more in the foreground one of the reasons which I like doing a theatre in the first place is that I like the idea of um, a story taking place in a particular room which I wouldn't have to change and the story would be separated by you know, a couple of hundred years maybe and that simply as a theatrical notion had some weight with me because I think that theatre has got as many possible moves as a game of chess mm. and the, the the form is very important to theatre content of obviously is important to theatre mm. but not in the same sense that content is important to an essay on science or an essay on philosophy or an essay on anything theatre is not like that theatre is an event and it's in three dimensions. Uh, it, I suppose I would exclude touch and smell, but essentially it's multi-sensual. Mm -hmm. And if you think of, if you have an idea um, of which is really much more to do with form, that's a valid reason for trying to get into a play. But then the subject matter, of course, is almost simultaneously uh, necessary, um, and that's those are the two main rivers joining up. So the subject matter, and, and for those of you, you of you who have never seen Arcadia, so uh, part they're of the not going to see it after your description anyway. I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> <laughs> I did say sex, right? You did say sex. That yeah. is true. There's, we have an outside chance there, and it's say, also yeah. very funny. Um, oh, that's it's, good. Yeah. It's funny, and and in fact, that's important to you. I think at one point, uh, you uh, you said uh, that laughter uh, is a sign of comprehension, right? You, that you yes. like laughter. Yes. Yes. Um, pretty much everything I've written, I'm 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 not sure if there's even a single exception. Um, these plays and pieces, they they they're supposed to work on a comedic level, mm. some way or other, one level or another. And so I'm very interested in the whole subject of audience laughter because it's more interesting than it seems. Um, for one thing, <clears throat> the sound of an audience, an audience absorbed by a tragedy uh, is pretty much the same sound uh, as an audience failing to get a joke in a comedy. In other words, you're really playing to... Um, a silence. In the case of comedy, uh, it's really instructive, uh, that silence. It tells you you've done something wrong, mm -hmm. that you've actually made a mistake of some kind. You've screwed up there. Um, and as you've just mentioned, it's also very important and is important most of the time for its being a signal of comprehension. And that's what happens. No, we like background. Yeah. 
And um, laughter, too. You know, when you're just creating the first, taking the first steps with a play, uh, a play which has never been done before, and you get your first audience, <clears throat> these are the sort of things you learn immediately. Um, what you learn <clears throat> is to do with a level of comprehension, because all the time one is trying to work on the edge of that. It's very boring to work well within it. The, uh, another issue about that, I think, is pace. Uh, <coughs> uh, a script like this one, like Arcadia, and, and most Stoppard plays, there's a struggle. I, I told you before we went on the air, I uh, spent a good part of the weekend driving back and forth to Maine, and I had uh, four of your BBC radio dramas. And I want to ask you about radio plays, too, as we go along with me. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that, uh, obviously, there are these human stories unfolding that are, are enthralling, uh, and, and one cares very much about... Uh, the predicaments in which the characters find themselves and how they resolve or don't resolve those predicaments. And, and just as you are caught up in all that, suddenly a, an insight uh, goes whipping by. And sometimes it feels as though it goes whipping by so fast that I, I really do want to hit up the pause button, which I could do with your radio plays, but I can't do watching Arcadia. I, in the 2011 Broadway production of Arcadia, I was sitting in the front row, and like so much of the audience, I was kind of sitting towards the edge of my seat because there's so much about the human story that absolutely pulls you in and, and lifts you up. And then there are these massively important things that are being said that really, for most of us, require a little bit of thought to digest. And it must be a struggle to do that. I mean, do you, do you expect an audience to be able to, to get everything that's in Arcadia the first time around, or are you kind of hoping they'll see it three times? Uh, that would be a presumption on my part. <laughs> Either way, maybe. Yeah. Um, I better make clear that I go to a lot of trouble to, to write. I, I know the kind of speeches you're referring to, mm -hmm. um, where somebody is trying to explain something which might be quite technical, unknown to our own experience and so on. Um, I know what you're talking about. I go to tremendous trouble time over and over again to try to make it crystal clear to anybody who wants to listen to it. Mm -hmm. um, and really nobody is at fault if it goes by and you feel you haven't quite grasped it. Though there are different levels <clears throat> in the consciousness which um, would count as understanding something mm -hmm. less or more. Uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you kind of hear something and it's gone and you can't quite feel you've grasped it. But there is a way of understanding things but finding yourself unable to explain those things to a third person. In other words, you can take it on and you get some sense of what's going on. I really don't like the sound of my voice here because it sounds as though I'm colluding with some notion of, I don't know, educating an audience or trying to somehow instruct it beyond the, as it were, legitimate line of recreational theater. 
It's the last thing in my mind. I believe in theatre as a recreation. And I didn't feel I didn't much see the point of it otherwise. And, and, and I find <coughs> your plays a great source of recreation. But it's, I'll give you an example. I'll give yeah. them an example. So, yeah. Uh, and be, and because the other thing about these moments is that they're also usually fabulously entertaining. So uh, Bernard, uh, one of your characters, and who's a bit of a git, um, uh, he's having, he gives a, a, a speech kind of declaiming against science and, and classicism and in favor of art and romanticism. Uh, and he's talking to a scientifically oriented character and he says, oh, you're going to zap me with penicillin and pesticides. Spare me that and I'll spare you the bomb and aerosols. But don't confuse progress with perfectibility. A great poet is always timely. A great philosopher is an urgent need. There's no rush for Isaac Newton. We were quite happy with Aristotle's cosmos. Personally, I preferred it. 55 crystal spheres geared to God's crankshaft is my idea of a satisfying universe. I can't think of anything more trivial than the speed of light. Quarks, quasars, big bangs, black holes, who gives a bleep? How did you people con us out of all that status, all that money? And why are you so pleased with yourselves? Well, that's a terrifically funny speech. But there's also, I mean, I, I wanted to stop the play and go out for coffee and talk to four or five of my friends about that. I mean, <laughs> I mean so many of these, these, these plays have moments where you feel like you should dismiss the audience and say, go out to a bar, talk this over, uh, and then come back. We've got more. Um, he's being provocative. He's talking to somebody who's in science. He's in the humanities. He's doing essentially a riff on um, quite a well-known attitude, quite a commonplace attitude of um, <clears throat> hostility towards the sciences mm -hmm. and envy towards them. Um, <clears throat> and you got that, I, 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 you know, what would you go to the bar for, to talk about what? You, you seem to have got what you should be getting. But uh, to have sort of a, a longer and less Philistine conversation maybe about sort of the yeah. ways in which the arts uh, and the sciences clash and the ways oh. in which they marry. This is ultimately, I think, to a certain degree, a play about the ways in which they marry. I think that's really good news. I mean, that is what <laughs> is going on in the play, yeah. among other things. And I think um, it's, it's a success for the play if people want to talk about it later, if they mm. want to discuss something that the play brought up. That, to me, is definitely success. But um, <clears throat> I don't know that, I don't know that um, it's necessarily something which ought to be wrapped into your evening. Mm. I, I mentioned the distinction earlier between theatre as an event and theatre as a text. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole notion of people reading plays is relatively new for me. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't something that I thought happened much at all when I started out. And I thought plays in print were a kind of courtesy from your <laughs> publisher. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Um, what I'm really, I think what I'm saying here is about the area you brought up is that uh, I don't really have a game plan uh, about how much difficult stuff there ought to be. If somebody had to, if I had to answer that, I'd say 
really none. <laughs> and at the same time, I'd be aware that not all of it was as undifficult as everything else in the play. Uh, all I, all I want to say really is that uh, to write a thing at all, I'm sure this is true of all writers, it's just got to be something which interests you to do. Mm. And the things which interest me are intellectual questions which are outside my, beyond my education. And they just lock into my brain mm. as a very absorbing, interesting, totally enjoyable activity. Um, I would never call it research because mm. that sounds like some form of um, duty or, or obligation. Uh, with a play like Arcadia and others, I have to force myself to stop reading and start writing when I'm running out of time. Mm -hmm. I really like finding things out. And then there's the whole thing of inventing a story without which there's no reason for us to be in the theater. This story in particular, because it's... It and by the way, you know, just to go back to the notion of difficult, I wouldn't say difficult. I, it, for me, anyway, these plays are often like watching a series of presents be unwrapped very, very quickly. And, and my eye is still on one present, and then there's another present being unwrapped for me. Um, but this play, speaking of wrapping, is something in which a lot of disparate elements do really come together very exquisitely. And, and somebody suggested this via email. I have to give a man named, I think his name was Bob Hopkins, emailed me this question, but it's a great one. Maybe more so than any Stoppard play I can think of, this is one where disparate elements, they do finish up and tie together so exquisitely. Was there a moment of real joy for you when you realized that this, that this, this set of puzzles you had were going to lock together so nicely? Did, was there a, a particular aha, eureka moment like that for you? Um, I'm sure there was. You, of course, you see it some distance ahead. Mm -hmm. um, it's, what you, it's what you try to do with every play, and most of you don't quite do it, you know. Mm -hmm. You know the way certain uh, constructions, like maybe a wigwam, they, they, they come to a place at the top that it all fits nicely. And you kind of write plays where they do that, and you think, <laughs> oh dear. Um, yeah, um, the thing is that it's not, it's not good news if you feel clever, mm -hmm. but it's really good news if you feel lucky. You ought to kind of, I don't, you know, I, from uh, thinking back pretty much from 50 years ago um, <clears throat> I was kind of making it happen while I was writing it mm -hmm. I had some notions about what they had mm -hmm. so you you have to as it were get lucky in some way mm -hmm. or trust some subconscious uh, teleological drive to get you to the right place the man who sent you the email, mm -hmm. he, he's put his finger on something, definitely. Um, Arcadia uh, was, was lucky. It got mm -hmm. lucky. Um, and, um, but in 1968, I, I wrote a little comedy, The Real Inspector Hound, it was called. Mm -hmm. And it starts off with a body under a sofa. It's a parody of a thriller 
and I didn't know who the body was mm. or who killed him or why. And then, you know, a few weeks later, you get somewhere and you think, oh, that's who it is and that's who killed him. It sounds pretentious in a way, but I swear that that's how you've got to get to that moment of understanding about what you're writing. Because if, if, you, if you get to it all, as it were, in advance, then what you're writing becomes a kind of brittle object designed to arrive at a certain place. If you don't quite know where it's going, it's much more organic and it will withstand pressures and seismic shocks. Its psychology will be consistent. Yeah. If you figure it all out in advance, you'll find yourself writing things which for some reason don't feel quite right, although they seem reasonably logical, but it's because they're psychologically faulty. So Arcadia, which I still have done a poor job of describing, but we, I think we've not even said that it does toggle back and forth between Regency England, 1809 anyway, and, and the present day. Um, it, it's a bit of a detective story in which the audience actually has more information most of the time than any of the characters uh, do. Um, it, it may be a, a detective story with a series of, of puzzles that need to be solved. Um, and, and towards the end, one of the things that becomes very important to talk about is the second law of thermodynamics or entropy. So that's the notion that everything put together sooner or later falls apart, that the universe is, is losing heat, that, or at least the heat will not stay organized anywhere uh, in the universe, and that, that everything is going towards a state of chaos. Um, and, you know, Einstein said that the only really interesting question is, is the universe a friendly place or not? And, and reading this play again and thinking about it, it seemed as though one of the interesting questions for you is, is chaos an inherently less desirable state than order? Is chaos an inherently unfriendly process? Or, or is it something that in any way we, we could celebrate? At the beginning of the show, I don't know if you could hear it, the music playing was let's face the music and dance, which kind of is what happens at the end of this play too. Um, how, how do you feel about, do you, you feel as though that's an essentially negative message, or is it is that sort of idea of well, if in fact that's what the music is, let's dance to it? I mean, is there any kind of happiness at the end of this play? Well, I think it's uh, a kind of moral duty to uh, try to be happy, mm. as well as to make other people happy. Mm. Um, I'll come back to the precise thing about chaos in a moment, mm. but. Just thinking of the whole thing, as it were, philosophically, uh, it's really, a, really, really a bad idea to subjugate, imprison, and murder millions of people in order that billions will be happy, happy at some future date. Uh, this is a common uh, way it is a it is a way of looking at a common phenomenon phenomenon of dictatorships uh, and ideologies mm. uh, and a curious way um, a, a dictatorship is is often like a fight against chaos in other words dictators don't like disorder mm. they everything needs to be in its place highly regulated 
And in that respect, the Western world, the, the wonderful Western liberal world of which we're all part of, is just seeping into a mindset uh, of pseudo-dictatorship in the sense that we now regulate everything. We're very suspicious of things which are not micromanaged. Mm -hmm. um, we're now, we've, we've been talking about chaos in a slightly misleading way because there's an informal way of talking about chaos. And mm -hmm. yeah, chaos is bad mm -hmm. and fine. Um, probably, <laughs> mostly. Mm -hmm. um, the, the chaos which um, the young man in the play is dealing with is actually um, a natural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it has huge implications for our lives and the way everything works. And the natural phenomenon is telling you that initial conditions, how however tinily loose they are, in the, they will grow into a future where, which is essentially unpredictable. Mm -hmm. um, the weather forecast would be an example. Um, so as to whether I'm pessimistic or optimistic about chaos, uh, I'm not... I'm neither about chaos, as the word is understood by a biologist, as the word is understood by by society, by you and I sitting in these chairs. Um, I'm not quite. I'm, I'm I'm somewhat pessimistic, only because I feel that the fear of disorder in society is now so widespread and has a kind of tacit public backing. That I, that I feel that's, that uh, there's, there's less freedom than we've been used to in our youth. You know, where I'm older than you are, you, you, you look pretty young to me, but even in your youth, mm -hmm. there was more. There was more freedom. Um, I think what, what one has to say to oneself is, stop trying to make everybody else uh, be happy in your own in your own terms, mm -hmm. um, you have to do what you want to do. You have to do what you feel is contributing a fragment to general, the, the commonwealth, to general happiness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you might want to boycott. Uh, let's, we, we should actually, we can get personal here. Suppose it occurred to you that uh, Amazon have got too much of a monopoly, a stranglehold on the dissemination of books. That you thought know, has occurred to me. It, what? That thought has occurred to me. It has yeah. occurred to you. Well, uh, you know, I feel whatever else is... I, I, it, it occurred to me because I, because I used to getting... I'm just used to being published the way I'm published. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Amazon's very powerful and can insist on very large discounts which endanger independent publishers or so, you know, there will be a big comeback if they can be bothered, which will prove that I, I'm wrong about these things, but I don't believe I am entirely. Uh, what do you do? You don't, you don't then suddenly devote your, the rest of your life to campaigning. You know, you, you just make pri small private decisions about 
trying to um, fit into society in a way which you feel damages it least. You know, we're all using up the air, and uh, I don't drive a car which is powered by cow dung. I mean, we're all we're all implicated. Well, it, it seems to me that one thing that you can do, and I think people do this in Stavard plays, is you can decide to love something else and love something better. So if I'm upset about Amazon, one possible response would be that I could find a local independent bookseller and love that bookseller. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we have a big supermarket chain called Tesco, which I think was here for a while. There was a moment when it seemed, it, it apparently was the case that, that one pound of every eight pounds spent in England was spent at Tesco's. So my immediate reaction was never to buy anything at Tesco's. Is this childish? I'm not sure. I don't think it is childish. Mm. I just had a sense that uh, there is a critical mass point where the corner shop or the independent bookshop or whatever just um, dies, it as, asphyxiates. Mm. Um, I never wrote a letter to a newspaper about Tesco's. I never started uh, campaigning. I never joined the protests, and there are protests. Mm. There have been. Now, uh, is this the lazy way to go? I don't know. All I did was stop going there, and it's... It's it's a view of things which is really saying that there's a kind of one degree of separation. You know, you look after the people you love. You mm -hmm. can't look after everybody. And it's part of that. Um, and maybe that's not ambitious enough. Uh, for better or worse, it wasn't the attitude that, say, Lenin had. Um, and nor was it the attitude that uh, you know, Mother Teresa had. I mean, she's a very bad example because, in fact, it was very one-on-one. -on -one. But you know what I'm saying is that one lives a private life with private decisions or public life. If you're a writer, if you're a creative writer, you're not a polemicist, you're not an editor, you just write for a medium which is a storytelling medium which is several thousand years old now, um, you, it's quite a good place to invest the best of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, If you can just do that, then you're probably, with any luck, uh, imparting some form of pleasure to a number of people. Um, I'd, I'd settle for that <laughs> as an epitaph. We have to take a very quick break here. Uh, my producer signaled me for this break like 10 minutes ago, but that's fine. We'll take this break now. We'll be back with Sir, Sir Tom Stoppard and live from New Haven at The Study. We are live from the lobby of the study in New Haven. I swear to God, at least one person has walked in here with nothing other than being in a hotel on his mind, looked over and seen Sir Tom Stoppard uh, sitting here talking to me. Uh, I think that's pretty amazing in and of itself. So uh, Sir Tom Stoppard has touched your life somehow or other. You've either seen his plays, or if you've uh, never seen his plays, you've seen Shakespeare in Love, you've seen Empire of the Sun. If you've never seen any of those movies, there's this whole dark netherworld of script doctoring that he'll never tell us about, but it is 
suppose that certain, even certain Indiana Jones movies and Star Wars movies may have had your pencil on them. Yeah, I keep hearing that. Yes. <laughs> just a, and so there's another area, and I, I would be remiss since we're doing this on the radio, and since only a small group of people can actually see us, um, I did spend this weekend listening to four of your radio plays. Um, and, and you may have done the first one because you needed, you were young and you needed some money, but you've continued to do them for other reasons, I think. What, what intrigues you uh, about writing for radio? Um, I started, uh, I think, pretty much the, f uh, the first thing I ever had on was the radio plays, and it certainly wasn't for the money, believe me. <laughs> you have a very funny idea about the BBC. <laughs> I think um, I read 50 pounds somewhere or something yeah. like that. No, um, I, was, uh, yeah, I was driven by the sheer desire and delight in having something broadcast at all. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had, you know, my my sense of what was within my reach when mm. I was very young, a teenager, um, was very modest, unambitious. Um, I started writing. Um, there was a there was a series of fifteen minute radio plays. I wrote a couple of them. Then I wrote a third one, which was longer. It was all very thrilling, mm. um, and I like. I like doing it. Um, the last thing I wrote for radio wasn't that long ago. It was a year ago it went out. It was a, a piece called Dark Side, which was a radio play incorporating the entire Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, which is out there as a book with a disc. And writing that uh, was a very nice job, as a matter of fact. Um, People, you know, people ask you to do things regularly. Mm -hmm. People have things they feel they, they know what you'd like to write next. Um, but un unfortunately, um, that's all based on what you've written in the past, mm -hmm. and on the whole, that's not what you want to write next. So I'm constant. I'm very often I find myself, I say, yeah, I'd like to do that when it's being offered as a very an outside chance i'm sure you won't want to do this <laughs> and i think actually yeah i'll do that one so um radio um is a, a very it's a it, it's a very rich medium in more than one way um you you can get top level actors because they're only needed for a day, a day and a half, at the most, a day's rehearsal, maybe a day or two recording. They don't have to learn anything. They're reading it. So, I mean, one radio player had, in fact, um, it was called In the Native State, uh, which is now a stage play in New York. In, uh, called, but it's in uh, Indian Ink. In, Indian Ink, yeah. yeah. Um, that was the last performance I'm pretty sure that Peggy Ashcroft mm. ever gave, which uh, makes me feel very humble and thrilled at the same time. Well, there's another thing about that play, too, if I could just interrupt for a second. Yeah. And it is that, and about radio plays in general, which is that the, the audience has to create a certain part of the play that yeah. would be offered to them if this were a traditional yes. stage play. Yes. So in, in, in the play that you're talking about, yes. much of the conversation has to do with two pieces of art. Uh, two two paintings, um, and and so um, 
in, in the paintings have to be a certain thing. I mean, e each painting is very important in, in terms of what it is and how it looks. Now, as the radio listener, uh, I create those paintings. Uh, I, one of them is a nude, the other one isn't. Uh, uh, the one that isn't is in some ways that is, are described to us kind of incomplete, at least in terms of the artist. So I'm beginning to make these paintings in my head. If you're, I've never seen Indian ink on stage. I, I don't know what you do about this, but um, you, on stage you have to solve this some other way. Either you're going to, they're, they're going to be paintings that the audience can't see, in which case the audience is probably getting frustrated, uh, or you're going to have to show them the paintings, in which case some, someone's going to have to make concrete what in my mind, is still an imagined thing. Well, you're, you're completely spot on there. There is an oil painting in the play. Mm. You have to decide whether you want to see, whether you want the audience to see it or not. Mm. I, I personally do not, mm. um, and we don't. Um, but, yeah, there are lots of pragmatic things about mm turning a radio play into a stage play, mm -hmm. or indeed just writing a stage play. But with the radio plays, um, there, are, there, are, there are nice things about them uh, which are to do with, they don't, very often, they, they don't have to be a given length, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, not that the stage play does, but mm -hmm. in effect, uh, you're working in certain kind of, within certain frontiers to do with physical comfort. Mm -hmm. um, and I should tell you, actually, Colin, that, that uh, I sound as though uh, I talk, I, I sound as though I've had these answers, these thoughts for a long time. I, I tend to consider questions at the moment they're being asked. Mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and a lot of uh, my obiter dicta, my, you know, from the horse's mouth stuff mm -hmm. about my work, um, it's not really what it appears to be. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, as it were, responding retroactively a lot of the time. And uh, what I'm trying to tell you is that I don't move into the work with, from a set of principles. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very, if, if, and I don't ask myself the questions either. So if I'm asked the questions, then I have to consider them almost as if I'd never thought about these You don't things. have these answers spring-loaded for me. Yeah, that's, um, that's right. The, uh, I would just observe one quick thing, which is I do think cognitively there's a difference between a play, a, a picture, a painting that's on stage with its back to me that I can't see, and a painting that I'm hearing about in an audio play. I feel as though in the latter case I really am free to invent that painting in my mind, Whereas if it's up on stage and I can't see it, I'm just yeah, getting that's, mad. That's completely true. And, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about radio is that the scenery is much better. <laughs> um, or worse. No, it's better. It be. It's whatever you make yeah. it. Um, yeah, I had a play where the set designer had to do um, like a, a classic English 18th century, uh, a constable painting. Mm. Uh, and, and also a modern piece of art, rather like um, Klein or somebody. Mm. And I was, sit, I was standing in the stalls during the technical rehearsal, looking at these paintings, mm. and I thought how, how incredibly clever it was to suggest, they, they, of course, when you walk up on the stage, 
the constable just fell apart. Mm -hmm. It was just daubs, and from a distance, that's what it looked like. The thing which is really, really interesting is that the Klein stayed the Klein. Mm. Uh, however close you got, <laughs> that's what it was. Um, so I think I really ought to write a play about art now. Well, you, you have done a few, but I anyway. Uh, we have to take a quick break. Sir Tom Stoppard is here with us. Uh, a little applause here from our New Haven audience. We're so happy to hear them. And we'll be back after this. All right, we're back. We're live from the study, a beautiful hotel in downtown New Haven on Chapel Street. Sir Tom Stoppard is here with us, uh, and we should say that Arcadia is... Uh, uh, Steve, where's Steve Padlow? When does Arcadia actually open? It's like October, October, 3rd. October 3rd is when Arcadia actually opens here at the Yale Rep. Um, isn't it great? I just call out to the audience for missing pieces of information here. Um, so... You know, sort of go back, to go back to one, something we were talking about earlier, about this whole question of people who try to establish order and, and have power over other people. As I read your work, one possible attitude that I, I detect, and you may correct me about this, is that in some ways you're more interested in the subversion of anybody who's got an established order than you are in any particular established order that might replace it that you're kind of attracted to chaos that way anyway, that, you, that overthrow is more interesting to you than the thing that might replace the thing overthrown. Fair statement? Well, I, I, I just, just before the break, I was saying that I probably sound as though I know the answers to these questions, <laughs> but I have to actually look at myself when they're being asked yeah. because um, they, they um, have the force of novelty. Hmm. I think that... Um, there's a there's a sort of false premise in the question because the real urge is to to, to do with storytelling mm -hmm. uh, rather than, for example, prophecy mm. or uh, a kind of um, pedagogy or didacticism. It's, mm. it's essentially to do with individual characters who have a character. Mm. Um, so. I'm kind of thrown by huge questions about whether I'm more sympathetic to the act of overthrow than, or more interested by it than in what might follow. Um, I don't even know how I would apply that to the plays I write, where, um, disappointingly perhaps from the point of view of somebody who likes big answers, the, the problem is usually the next line. Mm -hmm. you know, what is the next line? Uh, I'm, I'm interested in plays in all sorts of ways, and one of the ways I'm interested in them is in the way that you might be interested in a petrol engine, uh, because the effectiveness of a play um, is, uh, is, as it were, dependent upon surprisingly technical things mm -hmm. uh, and because for me I know I'm now copying out of your question and dodging it and deflecting Sorry. it and ignoring it but mainly because I didn't understand it uh, <laughs> and you know what's really happening in theatre what, what a playwright is doing is mm -hmm. he's controlling the flow of information 
from the stage to the audience. Mm -hmm. And there are many ways in, in which <clears throat> you can get that wrong. Mm -hmm. um, because audiences are frustrated if the information is inadequate and they are irritated if it is excessive or superfluous. Uh, but it's very much to do with what they're being told and in which order they're being told it. Mm -hmm. That determines whether a play is working or not. That's what determines, in a sense, it's, that's the structure of the art of storytelling. Uh, this, this is a highly specialized kind of answer to a very general public sort of question. I apologize for that, but I retreat to ground I feel safe on, uh, especially on air. Do you, do you feel as though, and this really certainly comes up in plays, I'm thinking of the real thing in particular, do you feel as though your dramatist eye never shuts down, your dramatist mind never shuts off, that you are seeing most situations of your life and maybe most situations of the world around you in terms of how they would play out? I'm constantly looking for something to write a play about, one at a time, thank mm -hmm. goodness. But it's not that I'm... It's not that I kind of look at the world and I think there's one, there's one. It's more to do, it's, it's more likely to happen uh, from something I'm reading. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the chances of my reading exactly the right thing are quite remote. Um, the other point is, I suppose, that I don't actually have to do it again if I don't want to. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm quite old enough to stop, but I don't want to. And I really, really do want to... I, you know, two weeks after I finish something, I'm beginning to feel unemployed in some discreditable way. <laughs> um, and I'm essentially looking for something to do. Mm -hmm. And I have, but as I said before, I, I can't really look in certain promising areas. It's not like that. Uh, it'll probably be something coming out of somewhere where I've never been before mm -hmm. intellectually. Um, and I, I hope it continues, but I'm not sure. You do revisit certain questions. I mean, uh, I know we are not uh, going to talk about it any, any length, and you have no worries there because we're almost out of time anyway. But the title of your the play that we'll be seeing in 2015 suggest, suggests that it's a play about questions of consciousness, uh, of what the human mind is, which is a little bit something you thought about in Jumpers, too. Yes, I yes. Um, well, that's a very impressive uh, thing you just said because I didn't tell anybody, but I've been aware that there are one or two moments in this play which uh, existed in this play that Colin referred to, which was actually first performed in 1972, I think. And um, you're utterly correct about that. Uh, of course, Jumpers was a comedy stroke farce, mm -hmm. so it may not be immediately apparent. But yes, uh, the, the main character in this old play, mm. comedy farce, is asking questions which are being asked in the play which I've been working on most recently. Um, as mine host indicated, it's a bit embarrassing to talk much about a play months in advance of it even going into rehearsal, and I don't really want to do that. But mm. uh, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a play about a young 
female psychology researcher who um, has difficulty with uh, the comprehensiveness of current evolutionary theory. And that's kind of mm. enough to put anyone off, so I'll stop there. Well, and we only have about 60 seconds left, so I'll let you, I'm going to let you pick the note that we end on. But I, I would say that you know, if, if you do a play about, um, uh, about the second law of thermodynamics, uh, and at the end you leave us with this kind of, kind of gossamer, almost mystical moment, and, and now you're thinking about a play about sort of strictly neurochemical and electric theories of the mind, um, which are a little bit depressing sometimes if you want to believe in a self, a soul, something, you know. Um, how are you feeling these days? You feel pretty much optimistic about what it means to be a human being? You get to have that last word. Um, I feel optimistic about what, what we're capable of. Mm. Um, in in the right direction, um, but uh, I'm not very optimistic at the moment about the way society is reforming itself. Mm. Well, we may have to pause there, right? Do we have to pause there, Katie? All right. All right, 45 seconds is uh, not enough time to do anything other than to, first of all, thank the great people of the study who uh, host us so in such a lovely way here. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> To thank Yale Rep and to thank Sir Tom Stoppard. To thank Gina Amatruda back at the mothership who kept us on the air, which is a wonderful thing too. And I hope your stay in New Haven is a good one. It certainly is so far, and I'm sure it will be. Thank you very much indeed. Right, thank you. We're done. The time is gone. The song